bad joke. I apologize for that joke. I told the sunrise service, I said, don't worry, the sermons are exactly the same. But what you don't plan for is that Red Bulls compound in your blood. So I had a Red Bull, and then we had a service here, Easter sunrise service. I did that to try to alleviate some pressure in this room. I thought there would be like 30 or 40 people who would subject themselves to an early morning service. There were 74 people that showed up. It was awesome. Um, It was sweet. I loved it. Someone asked me, if you would do that every week, wouldn't you? I said, hey, uh, if people will come, I will preach, even if it's just like my wife, because she needs a lot of Jesus. I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Now, maybe I did. Okay. Uh, I'm telling you, the Red Bulls, I had more Red Bulls, and then I had McDonald's, which I never have, so I feel fast and slow simultaneously. McDonald's slow, Red Bull fast, coffee, it's feeling really good. I'm glad you are here. We are here to celebrate Easter that Jesus lived the perfect life, died the death we deserve to die. They put him in the ground and he rose again. That's what we are here to discuss this morning, to talk about, to bring into our life. So let's pray. We're going to jump in. God, I thank you. I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you that we have a reason to live. I thank you that we are empowered by him to live. I thank you that he died for me that he died for everyone in this room, across the country, around the world today, and that he rose again to seal the deal, to make it known that what he said was real and true for our lives. I pray that you would change lives today, that you would take people who don't know you, aren't in a relationship with you, and you would move them from point A to point B. I pray that every person in this room would be impacted by your goodness, your love, and forgiveness this morning, and it's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Well, today we get to talk about my favorite topic, Jesus. I love talking about Jesus. If you come to the chapel every week, we've been in the book of Colossians, and I talk about Jesus every week. I I even ranted on Facebook this week. I said, if your church does not talk about Jesus, go find a new church, because you're not actually at a Christian church. If you go there and all they talk about are everything that's under Jesus, that's not the main thing. And on Easter Sunday, they better keep the main thing the main thing. Well, if you're new, my name is Ryan. I'm your pastor. And at the chapel, we're all about Jesus. We have a three-foot-tall sign that says Jesus. On our signs out on each corner, it says that we're all about Jesus. On our website, we're all about Jesus. I hope that not an hour of my day goes by without saying the name of Jesus. He is our focus, our aim, and our only hope. Our desire is to see him change lives, to bring people into his family, to raise up people who will serve his kingdom, to send out followers who will bring hope, peace, and restoration to this broken world. Jesus here at the chapel is not a thing we add to our life, but he is the center of all that we do. And today is his day, the holiday of holidays, because it celebrates the moment for which all things were made, the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's some confusion, I think, in regards to why things were made. See, everyone here has a mission statement. Did you guys know that? Did you know you have a personal mission statement, whether you know it or not? And we're bombarded by mission statements all the time. I'm going to do a little social experiment. We're going to try it. Ready? You're going to try to complete my sentence. Nike, just, right. Sprite, obey your, these mission statements are inundated into our lives all the time. And whether or not you know it, you have a mission statement for your life. And if you're like me, you've given mission statements to your children, maybe, Uh, Just yesterday, it was so funny. One of my neighbors, I don't know if they're here this morning. If you are, I apologize. I didn't ask permission to share this story. They were cleaning their hedges. It was great because I wasn't doing mine. 
and uh, it was like 90 degrees. We call it air in Florida, but it's more like chewable water that you breathe. And they were out there, and I saw a teenager surface, and I thought, yeah, that's the mission statement of my kids. The reason I had kids was so I never have to do hedges like this. And now that I've moved to Florida, it's only raised that in me. I'm like, never, because we all know it's coming, right? If, if you don't have a landscape service, you know what's coming. The grass is coming, and it does not stop. And I tell my kids, I lean down, and I look them square in the face, serious as a stomach pump, and I say, the reason I had you is so that I will not be doing this for the rest of my life. And they think it's a joke. I'm not joking. They think they're getting allowance. They're not getting allowance. They're avoiding punishment. That's my kid's mission statement. To do what dad pleases. And, and actually, this is the mission statement that we all have. To do what dad pleases. But dad is God, our heavenly father. And when Jesus came to earth, he laid out his mission statement. And we're going to read that mission statement today. Then we're going to look at the characters in the resurrection story. The people that were all around Jesus' death and resurrection, and we're going to see where our stories fit into theirs, and we're going to find out how we can become freed from the things that plague us. So let's read Jesus's mission statement. In the beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 4, he said this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This was Jesus' mission statement. When he came with a mission, his mission was to set captives free, to give sight to the blind, to, to preach good news to the poor. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. As I read Jesus' mission statement, some of you are like, well, okay, he came to, to proclaim good news to the poor. And, and some of you in here are like, I'm poor, that's me. I gotta let you know, by, by the global standard, the global historical standard, we are so wealthy, it's almost literally insane. If somebody from Jesus' era saw all that you own today, they would think you were some type of royalty. And I already know, I can see it in some of your college student and 20-something-year-old eyes, they would not think that I'm royalty. If you have a change of underwear, you're almost royal, okay? This is how rich we are. If you've got more than one pair of shoes, like, I've got my suede shoes, I've got my Laker purple basketball shoes because the Lakers are the greatest team no matter what you say and how bad they're doing. I've got my black shoes, my brown shoes, my tennis shoes, my, I just got shoes. I have golf shoes. I have golf shoes. I have shoes to play a sport that I don't even play. Doesn't that seem weird? So, so I may not be poor in that sense. You may not be poor in that sense. But there is a spiritual poverty that afflicts suburbia. There is a spiritual poverty when you come into a place like anywhere in the United States where you leave a city, you go into the suburbs, and you come into, let's just say hypothetically, there's a city called Fishhawk somewhere. And in Fishhawk, it's the most picturesque place you could ever imagine. I've never seen litter because they have little litter gremlins that sneak out and they have invisibility cloaks and they pull litter back into their litter homes. And every single night they go up and they hang the moss ever so cutely. It looks like a Pinterest ad walking right into the church. It's insane. And, and, and we have all this money, but we don't necessarily have the wealth that we think we have. We're, we're poor spiritually because we're trying to stuff our spiritual appetite with physical things that never satisfy. Jesus has good news for you today. Jesus has good news for those who are held captive. And I know what you're thinking. 
I have not been held captive lately, Ryan. I know what others of you are thinking. My job holds me captive. And if you work for the military, it's probably true. Some of us are held captive to debt. Some of us are held captive in a marriage. We literally feel traps like we're running out of oxygen and the room is being pulled out from under us. Jesus has good news for you. He's come to proclaim freedom to you. And then he's also come to give us sight, to recover sight, to see spiritual things when our life is trying to be crowded out by non-spiritual things. The American dream puts a lens on. If you just get this car, if you just get this house, if you just have 2.5 kids, then you'll be happy and it gets clouded. If you get this job, if you get this much in the retirement, and all of a sudden we can't see anything except for what the world is telling us we need to be happy, but we all know it's a dead end because we never end up happy. We're the country that's had the most stuff in the history of the world, and we're also the country with the highest rate of depression. That should tell us something. Sight is so valuable, and Jesus came to give you sight. I always think about this story. Whenever I think about being able to see, I think about this story that happened to my younger brother. He's here today. I don't know where you are. I apologize ahead of time. So I was playing catch with a hockey stick. It sounds worse than it is. Because in all humility, I'm just going to let you guys know, I am very coordinated and athletic. I'm the model of masculinity. My wife's nickname for me is 200 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. That's what she calls me every day we're at home. <laughs> and I was playing hockey stick with my friend Tyson. I'm coordinated. Tyson is um, homeschooled. So um, don't... If you're homeschooled, don't bust at me. You're way smarter. I barely passed public school. That's how dumb I am on the ladder, okay? So Tyson's smart, but couldn't throw a hockey stick to save his life. Not only were we playing catch, and we're, we're big guys, you know, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, at the time, over 200 pounds. We're playing catch with a hockey stick over a group of young children, which included our siblings, right? Do you see where this is going? So Tyson, the homeschooled, throwing to um, Ryan, the Greek Olympian. Tyson throws it. And I see it happening. It's like slow motion. It's a movie. It's bad. I see it just unfolding before my eyes. This is not going to end well. Tyson throws the hockey stick, and it doesn't go up. It goes more straight. And his brother's back was to the hockey stick. Said hockey stick flings around, hits his brother, his own brother, so I'm not angry yet, in the mouth. His lip splits open. The hockey stick breaks in two. One piece goes to the ground. I'll call that hockey stick part dead. The next piece turns into what I'll call a spear of death and destruction. The sharp end, the business end, the broken end of that hockey stick continues to cycle through the air. I was already beginning to smile at his brother bleeding from the mouth until I saw the sharp end of the spear of death and destruction heading toward my middle brother's eyeball. That business end hit him right in the eye socket. My first thought is, dear God, how can I get away without mom finding out what just happened? That's my first thought. My brother's bleeding from his eye, and I'm like, hide it from mom! We didn't get to hide it from mom. She gave me a hard time um, from the time that he got hit in the eye until yesterday. She's still doing it. Because Trent, poor baby Trent, he was the baby. You know when you have the baby, they get so spoiled. They get everything you never got. My bedtime was like 8 o'clock till I was 30. This kid got to have Fruit Loops when he was 2 and stay up till 10 at night playing video games. I love you, dude, wherever you are. I don't know. But he had a messed up eye. He, he couldn't cry out of that eye, I don't think at all, from that day until today. <laughs> and he had the eye patch on every day with that eye patch. My mom would, you, you could take your brother's eye out. I always told you, it's all fun and games till someone loses an eye. And I was like, you did tell me that. It's weird how that actually worked for once. But Trent, man, he, he couldn't see. And he's as ADD as that dog in the movie Up. So imagine you take Doug from Up, <laughs> 
and you put a thing over his eyeball, and then noise flickers over here. He's like, going all right. He can't, he couldn't, for a month, he was helpless. And all that to say, here, here's what happens in our life. We're like, oh, it's, he's in the eye. Is he really here? Yeah, he's really here. Is he probably mad still? Probably, yeah. But, but we do that with our spiritual eyes, and it doesn't even phase us. We stick things in our eyes, and all of a sudden, we see Jesus clearly for like 30 minutes on a Sunday, and then we hit Monday, and there it is. It's like, I'm out of coffee. I've got bills to pay. I've got errands to do. My wife's mad at me. My kids are getting terrible grades. And it just piles over, and all of a sudden, we can't see, and we forget that the person who came to give us sight is within us saying, I'm ready, I'm here to open your eyes as soon as you're ready to admit that you need help. Well, these are the people, the kinds of people that God opens the eyes of. And I need you to know from the outset, if you're new here, if you don't know what we're about at the chapel, we're not about good people. Contrary to popular belief, the Bible, the stories we're going to touch on today, it's not a record of the blessed good, but rather the blessed bad. That's not me misspeaking. The Bible is a record of the blessed bad people. It's not a, a witness to the best people making it up to God. It's a witness of God making it down to the worst people, people like me and people like you. It's good news. Our assurance is anchored and must be anchored in the love and grace of God expressed in the glorious exchange in each of these stories we're going to hear today. Our sin for his righteousness. He came to set us free and he sealed the deal with his resurrection. So let's walk through the story very quickly looking at the different characters. Everyone say religious leaders. Religious leaders were there. Religious leaders were the ones who said, crucify this guy. And unless you think that this was some far gone realm, religious leaders today were the people like me. Religious leaders today would be like, if me and the pastor over at Fishhawk Fellowship and the pastor over at Bay Life and the pastor over at the Catholic Church, we'll let him in, pastor over at some other church, we all got together and we said, we are going to protect our zones because this guy is threatening us. That's the same type of people that were doing this to Jesus. And God sent Jesus to die and rise again because he loves and wants to set free people from religion, people that are stuck in religion. Now, some of you are thinking, am I a religious person? Are you a religious person? I have a little test. It's called, you might be a legalist if. Are you ready to try it out? Okay, you just do it in your head, you play along. Don't feel guilty, Jesus died for all your sin. So when you feel like, oh man, I really blew it there, know that Jesus came to set you free. So you might be a legalist if every time you sin, you start beating yourself up. You do one sin, whatever it is, you yell at somebody, you get angry at somebody, you lose your temper, you duct tape your kid to a tree, whatever your sin is, you think, ah, I'm such a bad person. And you beat yourself up and you beat yourself up and you beat yourself up for a couple days. And after you've beat yourself up enough, you think, yeah, I've, I've felt bad long enough. That's, that's the sign that you are being a legalist in that area of your life. And we all have strains of it in our spiritual DNA. Because Jesus was beat up enough for all of your sins. Every sin that you've ever done. From the first time I sinned, which I don't know when it is. My mother tells me it was in the womb. I tend to agree with her. I said my first curse word when I was two. Before I could say dad, I cursed. I could say mom in a bad word. I have no idea where I got it from, mom, if you're watching. Just kidding. She's a saint. Saved by Jesus. You might be a legalist if you're one of those people who holds the records of wrong of other people in your life. If you're married or you're in a friendship and as soon as you get in an argument, you've got a book 
and it's got someone's name on it, and it's got dates of every time they blew it in your relationship. You might be a legalist if. And I, I just found like 30 of you because your wife's like, doom, 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 doom. <laughs> and the husbands are like, do I elbow her? Is that legalism? I don't even know. You might be a legalist if. You're consumed with following the rules, and when people break rules, you're the first person to point it out, but you never tend to be breaking any rules yourself. God came to set you free from that because every time you point the finger, it diverts spiritually and points to the cross and the empty tomb. Because Jesus paid for every sin. If you call yourself a Christian, if you follow Jesus, if he is your Lord, he has paid for every sin. If you beat yourself up, you're saying, Jesus, you weren't beat up just yet enough on the cross, so I'm going to beat myself up a little bit because if I just feel bad for two days, that equals some merits in your economy. That's not how Christianity works. Jesus came to set religious people free. Acts 13 tells us, and by Jesus, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses was not meant to set people free. On the contrary, the law of Moses was meant to press you into a point where you said, I need something to get me out of this spiritual disaster that I'm in. The law of Moses was not to give you a set of rules and a ladder that says, you've made it, here's the spiritual stairs, all 639 of my laws, climb every law and come to the top. That's not how God works. He doesn't build a staircase and say, climb and try your best. He came down and got on a cross and put you on his back and raised you up. This is the good news for religious people like me and like some of you. Believe it or not, Christianity is not about good people getting better, primarily. It's, a, it's good news for bad people coping with their failure to be good. I used to be the pretender of pretenders. I could hide sin better than all y'all in here. You want to know how I know that? I'm a pastor. We are not allowed to sin, which is why I try to openly sin at least once a day, because I sin behind closed doors at least 300 times, because I'm impatient. I get angry. I get frustrated, and Jesus died for those things, and he is honing those out of me. He is working that out of me. It's not like I enjoy my sin. I hate it, and I keep going back to it. Jesus died to free me from the pressure, though, that that can put on a religious person. Well, there's some other characters in, this, in these shenanigans. I, I love them. The political people. So you're religious. God died for you, loves you, saves you. Political people. There was a guy, his name was Pontius Pilate. God died to set us free from political maneuvering, political powers. Now, in case you're, you're confusing the term, political maneuvering starts when you're like in middle school as a female. Like it's not just when you're voting. Political maneuvering starts in school. Because this kid wants to be in the cool crowd, and they want to be in this crowd, and they want to be in that crowd. And you know what? We actually just grow up and we just change the crowds. We want to be in this neighborhood, get our kids in this school district, have this money, drive this car. Jesus died to set us free from that type of political maneuvering. Because when he rose again, he proved once and for all that he was in charge not only of governing powers and authorities, he was in charge of life and death itself. This year's election year. Y'all have lost your mind. By y'all, I mean like America. <laughs> we have four people, for the most part, who are vying to gain our approval and love and acceptance and ultimately our vote. We've got the, um, the Trumpeters. We've got Cruz. We've got Clinton. And we've got those of you who are feeling the burn as it goes. 
It's one of those four, most likely, unless Jesus rips the sky open. Dear God, please let that happen first. <laughs> Jesus died to set them free and to set us free from the crazy Facebook shenanigans and reposting shenanigans that are going on. When Jesus comes back, he has a tattoo. I don't know if you knew that or not. I was um, getting interviewed for a podcast recently, and it was an audio podcast, but I was on Skype. And the guy interviewing me came from a more conservative church, and he said, so you have tattoos, huh? And he said, what about that verse in Leviticus that says you can't mark your bodies with tattoos? And I said, what about the verse right before it that says don't shave your sideburns? He didn't know that verse. But, you know, obviously that's my life verse because everyone tells me the tattoo verse, so I'm like, you shaved your burns, you equal sinner. And that you're forgiven of. And he said, well, you don't have to get one. I was like, well, I wanted to be like my king. Because when Jesus comes back, it says on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I know that's a weird place for a man to get a tattoo, but he's the God of the universe, so I'm not going to complain. And I know the Baptists are like, well, it could be on his robe. Well, not if you read the Greek. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This year, I'm going to recite Daniel 2.21 about 3,000 times. It says this, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. This whole thing, Jesus died to save politicians. And he is in charge of all politicians. If you think that your vote trumps his sovereign power, you are sorely mistaken. If you think that, that one person can make America great again and his name doesn't start with J and rhyme with Jesus, you are sorely mistaken. If you think that, that there's somebody that's going to take wealth and move it around so that you can have more stuff, you might get that for a second, but that's not going to give you the happiness you think it's going to get. Because then you're going to have formerly rich people who are going to be angry. So, so make no mistake, there is one king, there is one lord, every president is a pawn, every candidate is a chump in his hands. You don't have to clap for that. I don't want to make anybody mad and get my tax exemption status removed at this church. <laughs> Jesus came to set them free. You might be the political person in your office who's always maneuvering to get the next leg up, to get the next promotion. Jesus died to set you free from that because he wants you to know you are accepted, you are loved because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do or don't do. Man, I hope Jesus comes back this year before election day. Some of you are the career types. Could you imagine being the guard at the tomb? This guy was literally just doing his job. Just doing his job. He had one job to do. The religious leaders, after Jesus had died, went to the political leaders, said, well, Jesus said that there's this thing that he was going to come back from the dead. You know, can we just post a guard or two up there? Can you imagine? This wasn't something, it's not like this always happened back then. I know sometimes we read the Bible, we think, well, this is Bible times. No, those were just times. They had the Jerusalem Times, like we've got the Washington Post, and we've got the LA Times. They had the Jerusalem Times, probably carved in papyrus, I don't know. But it wasn't like people were raising from the dead left and right. So when your boss comes to you and said, ah, oh, these religious nut jobs, they want us to go guard this dead guy. Can you just go do it? Okay, yeah, go do it or I'll kill you. Okay, fine. The guards are there, and they're human beings, just like us. Two guys, probably younger than me, older than some of you, younger than some of you, standing there, shooting the breeze. Can you believe they have us guarding a dead guy? What, what do they think is going to happen? Like a zombie apocalypse? I don't know, man. I heard something crazy was going down. Let's just hang out here, make sure no one gets this. And then all of a sudden, two guys doing their job get confronted by angelic beings. Now, 
here's what happens. Sometimes we get so caught up in our career, we get so caught up in what God, what, where God has us that we forget that God has us there for a purpose. We forget that our life is more than our job. I want you to know today, whether you go and work a nine to five or a nine to nine, or whether you work an overnight shift, whether you're a truck driver, whether you're a salesman, whether you stay at home and watch kids, your job is not your identity. Your job is not who you are, it's what you do. Who you are is who God saved you to be, a son or daughter of the king of the universe who's been signed and sealed and delivered by the resurrection of Jesus into God's family. And I know, I know that it's so hard to separate yourself from what you do because here's how we meet people in America. Hi, my name's Ryan. Hey, my name's Bill. What do you do? Like that's the bottom line of our worth. Instead of, hey, my name's Ryan. Hey, my name's Bill. It's an Australian guy with a sloppy drunk accent. How can I serve you today? What can I do to make your day happier? Have you ever asked a total stranger that? What can I do to make your day better? It shocks people. It's shocking to them. They will get a look of disgust in their face. What do you mean make my day better? That's what I mean. Dummy, it's only a few syllables. I'm just kidding. Don't say that. Next part. Say the first part. <laughs> but get out of what you do and become who you are. The guards couldn't do that, so they lied and were paid off to cover up the truth. But Jesus came to save you. You who are caught up in your jobs, you are caught up in what you do rather than who you are. He came to set you free from that. Next one's my favorite probably. Jesus came to save the outsiders. A girl named Mary Magdalene. She was former prostitute, demon-possessed. She was on the outcast list. I don't know about you, but I feel like an outcast a lot of the time. I feel like an outcast because um, I know that I'm quirky. I, I get it. At first, I thought, you know, I, I just talked a lot, and then as I got older, I realized, no, you're definitely weird. Um, and my wife and my mother both affirm this, and I believe their opinions to be true, mostly. I'm, I'm with Mary Magdalene on the outskirts. I wasn't raised in the church I don't like playing by church rules. I like playing by Bible rules. And that makes me an outsider. Some of you feel like you're on the outside. Some of you feel like there's no way that I could come to this club because this club is the shiny people club. This club are the people who behave correctly. Newsflash for all of you that think that. This club is for the people who misbehave all the time. If you think you look around this room and you see a bunch of behaving people, either... They're very good at pretending, or you're just not looking close enough. It's, it's because we still believe that Christianity is about good people getting better, not a great and glorious Savior coming to get the wretches. Don't get me wrong, what we do is important, but it's infinitely less important than what Jesus has done. What we do is important, but it's infinitely less important than what Jesus has done. Mary was a prostitute. And a woman. Now, I know that means nothing in 2016 America. Like, oh, big deal, she's a woman. But in that culture, if you're a woman, your testimony did not count as much as a man's testimony. I mean, times were rough for women. They were between property and human. That's where the women stood on the stack of social justice issues. And God is in his infinitely loving, planning mind saying in heaven, how can I get across to everyone throughout history that I want outcast, sinning, jacked up people to be in my family. 
I've got it. The first person that I'm sending to the tomb is going to be a former prostitute, woman, demon-possessed, on the outskirts. That's going to be my first witness. Print it. That's good Bible. And Mary goes to, to bring the spices to, for Jesus' body because he wasn't buried properly. And she sees the tomb is empty. And God says, my plan is in motion. The outcast has seen it. She's the first witness to the most glorious truth in all of creation. And then she goes back and she tells Peter and John, you guys, I went and Jesus wasn't there. And it says Peter and John went running to the tomb. Now, side note, have you ever wondered why Peter in the movies or the flannel graphs is always like a big husky guy? I used to wonder that. And then you realize that Bible guys actually got it from the Bible because here's what happens in the story. Mary comes up, Peter, John, Jesus is missing. And it says, Peter and the one whom Jesus loved went to the tomb. And it says, John got there. And then it says, sometime later, Peter finally arrived. And it's just like in the flannel graphs. Like Jesus is there. He's straight out of the 80s, you know, white skin, pink cheeks, blue sash, moose mullet. And then you have John in the flannel graph with the cartoons, skinny guy. And then you have Peter. For some reason, he's like this yoked, 250 pound, always a redhead. It's really weird because they didn't have redheads back then in, in Jewish culture. But you see where they get it from because this story, now they're going, they're running there to see. And it's like John's running ahead and they're following Mary. And Peter's like, one minute, guys. Okay, here we go. And he's just getting along. They finally get to the tomb. They're still not believing Mary because she's a woman, former prostitute, and Jesus isn't there, and they believe something is up, something has changed. Jesus came to set free the people who are socially pressed. Jesus came to break down the social barriers. Jesus came to say, you separate women and men, poor and rich. I'm breaking down those barriers. Now you are free to come into God, the greatest treasure of all time, because I have paid the price. And then his friends come. Man, do I love his friends, huffing and puffing. A couple of them believe and some don't. And before we get to their story, when Mary returns, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus, it seems that he was like hiding somewhere, says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Could you imagine? She mistook the king of the universe, the guy who is maintaining all life around this entire planet and any life that will exist anywhere in the world, the guy who knows where every particle of space dust is moving, that guy is strolling through a gardener and Mary thinks he's just the true green guy. She's like, did you take Jesus? And I don't know how it went in my head. He's like in the shadow, and there's a tree over him, like an olive tree, because that'd be really poetic and, and Jewish-like. And then he just steps out, and God the Father, like, like oh, it was a good moment. Let's just crop the scene, light coming this way. And then Mary sees, twinkling her brown eyes, pulls the hood down, so excited. That's how I see it in my head anyway. And in that moment, we came full circle. Because not only did she see the tomb, but she saw the risen Lord, someone who nobody would trust in that culture. And God said, I love it. That's Bible, print it forever. I adore that part of God's freedom message. And then we have the angels. I don't know how God picks these things. It boggles my mind. I have so many questions for God that I'm going to ask him when I'm like 120,000 years old. I was uh, talking to my son recently. He asked me like, Daddy, when am I going to be 1,000? Because we talk like this at my home because we're crazy. 
I said, well, buddy, you're going to be 1,000 and 1,000 and, or 997 years, 996 years. Oh, how old are you going to be in that many years? I'm like, oh, my gosh, like 1,030-something, something. And it's so fun for me that my kids think that way. Because angels, they've been watching this story unfold for thousands of years. And, and don't be confused. Angels are beings. I believe they're beings that are spiritual. They're not like you and I. I know I've been to a, a bajillion funerals. I've done funerals. I've heard the funerals. And when somebody dies, I've heard it so many times, God has another angel. And I'm always like, no, he doesn't. He doesn't have an angel. They don't even want to be an angel. Because angels long to look into what we have, 1 Peter 1.12 tells us. Angels see this story of God having a creation made in his image, and then God dying for that creation, and then God sending his spirit into that creation, and the angels just watching this go on. Oh, whoa, wow, oh my. That's their, they worship, they look, they adore, they want to know, they want to see. And the angels were there, legions of them, singing at the birth of Jesus. But only two came and were shown, anyways, at the resurrection. And I can't wait to see how that part plays back in heaven. I mean, did God just give them a list of like straws? Like, okay, whoever gets the, the straws, two guys are going, that's it. Two guys. And I don't know, it's probably Gabriel that couldn't even go. He probably had to hand out the straws because he's the mailman angel. Right? He does the messages. He's like, you know, going down, going down. And my favorite, I want to meet Michael because he's the big guy, the guy that like, doesn't take any snuff from anybody, the, the warrior angel, the chief archangel. And I could just picture Michael. He's probably got like fingers like you know, heavenly kielbasas just reaching down. Oh, I got the bad straw. And then two little nerdy angels probably get the good ones. Woo! We're out of here, Michael. High five. You know, get out. But if you're Michael, you're like, oh, I could kill you but I'm still holy, so I won't yet. You guys know who Michael is, right? He's the guy I want to meet. He's the guy that when he got in a fight with Satan and Jude, it just has this like, little altercation where Satan's trying to get in Moses' body, and it says Michael gets the body, and he doesn't even fight Satan. It's like he just walks away, and he's like, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not even scared. You know what it's like for those of you who are basketball fans? I've been super into basketball this year. There's this guy I love watching. His name is Steph Curry, and he, he is a bad mamma jammer. He, he is like next level, I can do whatever I want. And there was this one uh, game he was playing. He shot a three from the outside sideline right here. And as the ball left his hands, homie turned around as the ball's in the air and eyeballs down the other bench. Boom! And then it goes in. I'm like, that's cold! This is what Michael's like, and he wasn't that angel. I don't know how God picks the onlookers, but the angels, they're onlookers. They're, they're looking into something they want to embrace. And so many of you are stuck in look mode. You know some of the facts. You know some of the stories, but you can't get out of this. I, I just have to look and see. I don't want to engage. I don't want to press in. I don't want to be a part of this family. I don't want to be a part of this restoration project that takes all that I have and pushes back the darkness and the brokenness in this world. I just want to be like the angels. I just want to look from the behind the scenes. I just want to kind of see it from a distance. Don't ask me to do anything. Jesus died and rose again to set you free from that. Because before he rose again, you were simply a human being in need of forgiveness under the wrath of God. And when Jesus rose again, I don't know if you're aware of what he did. When he died, he went and defeated sin and death forever. The moment that Satan thought he had won, his mouth was hooked with the grace of God. And God took over the keys to sin and death. 
so that now you freely enter in. Now you are free to no longer be an onlooker. Now you are free to no longer be oppressed by religion. Now you are free to no longer be manipulative and political in your life. Now you are free to know that if you're an outsider, God makes you an insider because it's his love that brings us in. It's not what we do that brings us in. And then we've got the followers of Jesus. Some of them believed, some did not. Some believers saw him and the followers said, I believe, I see you, and unless you don't realize this, they saw Jesus with their eyes. They touched him. Thomas doubted, the famous doubting Thomas. I can't wait to hit replay on that story. I don't know how Jesus did it, but in my mind, it once again goes something like this. Jesus appears in a room, and he says, I'm here, do you believe? And they're like, we believe. And the one guy in the corner like, I don't know if I believe yet. And I'm sure Jesus has so much fun, you guys. I mean, let's be honest. He gets to do what he wants. And he's got the hole here and there. And he's like, you want to believe? You want to believe? Put your finger in there. And that's, whenever you get that challenge, everyone backs down. There's nobody that's like, fine, I will. (laughs) Oh, guess you are real. They knew. They ate breakfast with him. They walked with him. And then they carried that news for the rest of their life. Today is Easter 2016. What I'm proposing is that we make this year an Easter year where we bring this good news of freedom, that Jesus came to die and set free all of these different types of people like you and me, and we bring it to our cities. Before our feet go from the bed to the floor, we're already thinking, how does God's forgiveness toward me shape my day today because tomorrow some of you are going to realize that you forgot to buy coffee and that every store is closed on Easter in Florida tomorrow some of you are going to go back to the Monday blues by Wednesday you'll be posting things about how exhausted you are by Thursday that you'll have cute pictures of your kids up by Saturday you'll have pictures of how much your kids destroyed your house by Saturday you'll be absolutely wiped And you'll have to go to that tea if you're one of the 105 females going to that thing. What is this? All the girls clapping for brood leaves. Okay, guys, we're going to go hunting. We're going to kill a bunch of wild beasts, and we're going to call it Beast Feast. Clap for that. Could you imagine a bunch of fish hot guys hunting? (laughs) You got like the five guys that know how to shoot the gun, and the rest of the guys doing friendly fire. Got tagged in the rear. Sorry, side note. This happens. Red Bulls. These Red Bulls. Cut me off. Here's, here's what I want. I want you to bring that, though. Bring this Easter message every morning. Write it down. Just write Easter. Write Easter on your rearview mirror. Write Easter on your window. Say every morning, what does Jesus dying and raising again have to do with me today? And then go love your city like he loved you. Go give of your life like he gave for you. And then you're going to see throughout this year, I'm going to be making a bunch of fun videos. I'm going to be posting a bunch of pictures that are about Easter bringing Easter into our everyday lives. And it doesn't mean being the obnoxious Christian. It doesn't mean you go straight from here to Walgreens, drop a big sign that says turn or burn, because if you do that, I will punch you personally. It means bringing the love, grace, and forgiveness that Jesus gave to you to a lost and dying and broken world. It means when you finally get to sit down with your coworker who's been exhausted and whose life is spiraling out of control, you get to put your hand on their shoulder, tell them, I'll be here for you. God is here for you. Let me pray for you. And it means when someone says to you, don't pray for me, you're not allowed to do that at work, you say, I'm doing my number one job, working here is my number two job. 
because that's the reality of what it means to bring Easter to your everyday. Let me pray. God, I thank you for all of the lives represented here, the families represented here. I pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that you would bring Easter into our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That we would be remembering and thinking about the forgiveness and the freedom that we have in Jesus. For those religious types in here, that they would finally be freed from the burden that religion puts on their backs to perform and then be accepted. God, let them know that they are accepted by your love because of what Jesus did. God, I pray that you would help those people who are constantly craving the approval and acceptance of others. I pray that they would know that you love them and accept them because of what Jesus did when he rose again. And God, I pray for those in here who think they're outsiders, who think that they have sinned too much and think that they don't fit into this crowd. I pray that this crowd would be made up of only those people that are recognizing their failures because in our failures we stand triumphantly in your son's success. Thanks for all you've given me. I thank that you saved a wretch like me.